We saw that you really could summarize the whole book of Acts in just one really short, simple phrase that God's plan continues unhindered. If you're going to summarize the entire book of Acts, you could summarize it with just one phrase, God's plan continues unhindered. And then we expanded it a little bit and we said that the whole book of Acts is really about how not only does God's plan continue unhindered, how it happens is that Jesus expands His church through the Spirit's power and despite all opposition. Making sure that's off. And today we see that God's plan has not been hindered. It wasn't hindered by the death and burial of Jesus. He was resurrected. It wasn't hindered by the betrayal of Judas. And in this passage, we're going to see how God redeemed even that. In this passage, we're going to see how Jesus expands His church and His disciples are united. They're waiting prayerfully. They're living by His promises and they're relying on Him for everything. Like I said, today is Palm Sunday and unfortunately, most of the people in the city of Jerusalem did not get who He really was. They were cheering because they thought that the the physical Messiah was come to replace physical Israel. And they didn't realize that He was coming to do a far greater, far bigger work. Far more powerful work. And we rightfully celebrate this occasion. We recognize that He really is the chosen King of all. He's the deliverer of mankind. But we know from Scripture that a few days later... After they, they cheered him on, the same crowds were cheering something else. The same crowds were cheering, crucify him. Because he wasn't who they thought he was. Jesus was tortured, mocked, nailed to a cross. He hung and he died for those fickle crowds who did not recognize him for who he really is. But on the third day, he rose. And He was resurrected to life. And we're going to spend some time looking at the resurrection next week for Easter Sunday. But after the resurrection, we know from the book of Acts and Luke that He appeared to His disciples and hundreds of others, giving many proofs over 40 days. Think about that. The disciples must have been ecstatic. That's the context that this passage of Acts is in, in Acts 1.12. They must have been ecstatic because... Jesus was alive. And He was proving that He was real. And He was doing many signs and wonders and miracles among them. And they were ecstatic. They were excited. Their Lord was back with them. He was not dead. He was really who He said He was. The King of all. Powerful over all. But then, something else unexpected happened. And I don't know that they would have anticipated this at all. See, they're together with Him. He leads them out to Bethany in that area just a, a, a few hundred yards away, probably about a kilometer away from the city of Jerusalem. And he leads them out and he, he gives them some commands and tells them to go back to the city and wait for the promise. And then he ascends. And in the first 11 verses, you kind of get this idea that the disciples are kind of shocked. <laughs> whoa, whoa, he went up. What, what happened? Is he coming back? And... I wonder how you would have responded. I wonder how I would have responded after I'd just been ecstatic that Jesus is alive. He's with us. This is incredible. And then he's taken up. It must have been a little difficult for the disciples. What would they do now that they couldn't see Jesus? How would they react? The angels came and said, Why are you staring up into heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up, he's going to come back. 
in the same way that you saw him taken up. So how would the disciples react? And if you're reading this story of Acts for the very first time with, with fresh eyes, you may be wondering after you read verse 11, oh, how, how are they going to react? What are they going to do? What does it look like to wait? What does it look like to go and wait for the Holy Spirit and to expect Him? What does it look like? It must have been difficult. What would this period between the ascension of Jesus and when He would return, what would that look like when they couldn't see Jesus? How would they react? Were they sad? Would they be stupefied? Would they just sit on their hands? What did their waiting for the promise look like? Well, we don't have to wonder because Luke tells us in Acts 1, 12 to 26. So let's read God's holy, inspired, and errant word together to find out. This is God's word. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled when the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that field was called in their own language, Akadama, which is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become a witness, with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. In all of your word, it's, it's good for us. It's profitable for us for teaching, for rebuke, for instruction in righteousness. God, thank you for this instruction about what it looked like for the disciples to be expecting the promise of the Holy Spirit, what they did in that interim time. Lord, may we learn from this picture. May we learn from this account. God, may we apply This to our hearts. Would your word do what you promised to do and not return void, but accomplish the purposes that you have planned? God, strengthen me as I I preach, and Lord, strengthen all to hear and give attention to your great word that gives us life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I remember the very first time that I went windsurfing. I was in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. We had just thought, well, you know what, there's a little package thing, and we'll, I'll go windsurfing out there. I thought it would be easy. It looked really easy after all. If you've ever been windsurfing, you'll know that the first time probably isn't as easy as it looks. 
looks like they're just kind of just flying along. It's just wonderful. And I remember the very first time I got up on the board and first of all I could barely stand and then I, I pulled the, the sail, the mast up and was trying to hold on to things and it was difficult. I had to get it in the right position. I didn't, you know, we, we know what wind is, right? But it's harder to actually think, okay, what, where does wind come from? Where does it go? How do you capture it? How do you harness the wind? And so I had to learn that and position myself and, and put the sail in position. And, and after, I don't know, about 45 minutes or so of just failing to get the sail position right, all of a sudden it kind of all came together. And when it did, it, it was it was really amazing because I grabbed the boom, I pulled it around, and then boom, the wind just yanked me. And, and, and you, we went shooting forward propelled across the water and I, and I held on to that boom and I was hooked. And I wanted to experience that, that, that feeling of just, of, of experiencing the power of the wind just pulling me along and it was incredible. Maybe when I keep getting my sail in position, keep experiencing the power of the wind. What, what we're seeing, it's, it, it's a picture kind of, of, of the disciples as they are anticipating and putting themselves in position. You see, the Holy Spirit has been described at times as it's kind of like the wind in the sense that we don't know where the Holy Spirit comes from. We don't know where He goes. We don't, we can't see the Holy Spirit, but He is powerful. And Jesus had just promised to them to go and receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And in this passage, what we're seeing is them positioning themselves, them getting themselves in a place. What does it look like for disciples of Jesus Christ to put themselves in a position to receive from the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit? We don't know exactly where the wind comes from. I can't see how the wind blows, but we can position ourselves like a sail in a place where we're ready and eager for the Holy Spirit to fill our sails. And so we see that even in just in, in carrying forward ministry, we can see what were they doing that put themselves in a position to receive from the Holy Spirit. We can see the posture of the disciples, their attitude. It gives us a glimpse in the kind of posture that we need to have that, that makes way for the fullness of the Holy Spirit to, to fill our sails. And this passage tells us about their attitude and their posture. And it says that they immediately went back to Jerusalem. What's one of the first things they did? They obeyed Jesus' word. They immediately went back to Jerusalem in obedience to the command from Jesus. We see at the end of Luke's Gospel, which is really, if you've not been with us, it's Luke's Gospel is part one of a two-part historical narrative of Jesus and then Jesus expanding His church. And we can see in Luke 24, I think we have it on the overheads for you, Luke 24, 49, some background to this. Jesus had told them, He says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Don't miss that. How did they respond? They were obeying him. They were trusting in him. How do we know we're trusting? They were trusting in him because they immediately responded in obedience. And it produced joy. They had joy because they were trusting in Jesus. It says they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And, and how else were they positioning, positioning themselves? It says in verse 53, And they were continually in the temple blessing God. They obeyed Jesus. They were full of joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. And Luke tells us that they returned with great joy. Why is this important? It's important because even though their Lord, the Messiah, the King of all, 
had ascended into heaven and they could not see him any longer. They had joy. I think we can relate. We cannot see Jesus. But we can have joy. Even though they meant it, that Jesus would not be with them, they, they had joy in obeying his commands. But that, it's not an unremarkable thing. That's pretty incredible that they had joy just after Jesus was no longer physically with them. And I think that they had joy because they knew, they knew that what he said was true. They trusted in him. They knew that he was trustworthy. And that whether they saw him or didn't see him, they could trust in his commands. And this is really the kind of attitude that we're have as well is that is that our joy is not based on what we see, but it's, it's based on what Jesus has said. And they had joy because they trusted in Him. They knew that He was God. And they didn't let the fact that they couldn't see Him diminish their faith in Him. And look at what Luke tells us they were doing. They, they weren't idle. They weren't just sitting by and saying, well, what do we do now? We're just going to hang out here. We're just going to wait. No, they were worshiping Him in the temple. They returned to Jerusalem. They had great joy. Even though they encountered Jesus personally, they, they saw that they needed to be together with God's people. They still needed and wanted to be in the temple blessing God. And then from the context in Acts 1, going back to our passage, not only were they in the temple, they were actively waiting. They were together, it says, in one accord. And they were praying. They were waiting. They were relying on His promises. Their waiting was expectant. For you and for I, on, on this side of Jesus' ascension... How are we waiting for His return? Are we waiting joyfully? Are we expecting Him to return? Are we looking and trusting His promises to be true? The disciples, they, they were relying on His promises. Their waiting was expectant and joyful. They, they waited by, by continuing to do what He had called them to do. They, they weren't passive. They weren't idle here. Think about it for a moment. I think I might have felt like saying, well... Hey, wait, Jesus, what about us? You just, you just went up. Can, can we go too? Take me with you. I want to go. I might have been inclined to ask questions or maybe be bummed out because I don't understand it all. I might have become stoic and waited out my time, not doing much until he returned. I say that because those are my temptations now. And if you're honest with yourself, those are your temptations now too. At some point in time, you're going to be tempted as a Christian to be just kind of waiting things, just kind of in limbo, just hanging out there, not looking, not eager, not expectant. I believe that God had Luke write this passage in Acts so that we can see how we as a church can, are to wait for Jesus. How do we wait His return? We aren't to be idly standing by. We're to wait with great joy. And that joy that comes from knowing that what He said is true. That's where our joy comes from. We, we don't wait with joy because we have all the answers. We wait... With joy because we, we know he'll return. We don't know when he'll return, but we know he will. We don't, we don't wait with joy because it's easy. It wasn't easy for the first disciples either. Think about that. This wasn't easy. They lived in the same fallen world that we do. They lived with difficulties and unmet expectations and weaknesses and troubles. And even persecution for their beliefs. But we can wait with joy like they wait with joy, knowing and believing and trusting that what He said is true and that one day He's going to come back again and He's going to restore all things. We wait with joy because He's not left us alone. He promises the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, 
to those who wait on Him. And, and, and as I was looking through this whole passage, the main idea of the passage, it, it's not about the technical details of how they select a disciple and what do they do and all those things. I think Luke's trying to show us what did it look like? What did it look like for them to anticipate, to, to, to be eagerly expectant? What did it look like for them to wait? And So the main idea really seems to be that Jesus' disciples, they're united. They're in one accord. His disciples are united. They're waiting prayerfully. They're living by His promises and they're relying on Him for everything. That's what it looked like in that interim after Jesus had ascended. They, they were united. They were waiting prayerfully. They were living by His promises and they were relying on Him for everything. It says they went to Jerusalem. They went to the upper room. We don't know for sure, but I would imagine this was probably the same upper room that Jesus had his last supper before his crucifixion with them. Probably that same upper room where they went together. And Luke tells us of the 11 remaining disciples who went to the upper room. He gives us their names. And then with them in verse 14, it says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. He says that they were with one accord. Another way of saying that is they were united together. They were of one mind. They were of one purpose. And, and so really the first point that we're going to look at from the passage today is that the disciples of Jesus are of one accord. That's one of the marks of the disciples of Jesus, that they are of one accord. They're together in unity. They're not fractionalized. They're not separated. They're, they're not disparate. They are together with one accord. They were united in their faith, united in the purpose. They were of one accord in their joy. They were of one mind as they waited. This doesn't mean that they always agreed. As we're going to see later on in the book of Acts. But it does mean that they were committed to their unity. I'm going to share a, a quote with you from Thayer Smith's Bible Dictionary. It's, it paints a beautiful picture of what does it mean to be in one accord? What does this look like? This, this whole idea of being united, being in one accord. It says, the image is almost musical. A number of notes are sounded, which, while different, harmonize in pitch and tone. As the instruments of a great concert under the direction of a concertmaster, so the Holy Spirit blends together the lives of members of Christ's church. They were of one accord. They were in harmony. They were, they were acting together, each playing their own part, contributing their own note. I think this is meant to speak to us today as well. Are, are we of one accord, not letting small differences separate us? Not letting those different perspectives and ideas and backgrounds, not letting that separate us from the unity of the faith and being of one accord together. Positioning ourselves in a place to receive from the Spirit means that we're going to be in one accord. At the same time, you see that what happens when the body of Christ is not in one accord, you can see throughout the New Testament that whenever the body of Christ is not in unity, not of one accord, instead of the Spirit, there's all kinds of discord and disharmony and disunity occurs in the body of Christ. They are of one accord, and it says something interesting here, very personal note. It says, together with the women followers of Jesus... And then Luke is making sure that he mentions Mary, the mother of Jesus, specifically, and that he mentions the brother of Jesus specifically. And why does he do that? 
He does that because if you remember, if you've read through the gospel accounts, there was one point when Jesus is teaching and they're lowering the man through the roof to be healed and there's crowds there and Jesus' mother and his brothers, they come to get him because they think he's nuts. They think he's crazy. They think he's lost his mind. And yet, what has the gospel of Jesus Christ done? What is them seeing that Jesus really was who he said he was? And seeing the risen Christ, it's had an effect on Mary and his brothers, and they're changed. And now they too are with one accord. And then what were they doing in addition to worshiping God in the temple? It says they were devoting themselves to prayer. It doesn't say they were devo- they were just praying from time to time. They were kind of praying when it when it when it felt good. It says, no, they were devoting themselves to prayer. And this, this idea of devotion, it doesn't imply a casual thing. If somebody says that they're devoted to the Greenville Drive, I would expect that person probably has all kinds of pictures up of the Greenville Drive. They know the schedule. They know who they're playing and all the details of that. And my family, I have a few family members who are devoted to the Washington Redskins. I have another family who's devoted to the Dallas Cowboys. There is a class because they are devoted. What does it look like to be devoted to prayer. In fact, this word we have for devoting themselves, it's, it's used more in Acts than anywhere in the New Testament. And I think it's because Luke is wanting to show us that God's people are to be a devoted people. We're to give ourselves to God. And, and all throughout Acts, it gives different ideas and ways that we're devoted ourselves to God. And it, the followers of Jesus are continually giving themselves things like prayer, to teaching, to meeting together, to observing the Lord's Supper together. And this idea of devoting, it, it carries carries the connotation of being steadfastly attentive. To give unremitting care to a thing. To continue all the time. To persevere and not to faint. To be devoting themselves to prayer means that they're being steadfastly attentive. They're giving unremitting care to prayer. So Jesus' disciples are united. They're waiting joyfully and they're prayerful. And that's the second thing that we're to look at is that the disciples of Jesus are prayerfully expecting. They are prayerfully expecting Him to do what He said He would do. And we don't just see this in verse 14. This this prayerful unity, this devotion to prayer is seen in verse 24. Look down at verse 24 in your Bible, if you will. It tells us in Acts 1.24, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which the ones... These two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. What were they doing? They were devoting themselves to prayer. They were expecting that God would answer their prayers. They were looking to God expectantly in prayer. I know that sometimes when I pray, it's, it's not expectant. It's rote. It's routine. And I think that God wants to give us examples of prayer, and He'll do that all throughout the book of Acts, to show us that the disciples, they expected. They expected God to answer their prayers. And God did answer their prayers. They were expectantly prayerful. They were expectantly prayerful. They were praying expectantly that God would come, that He would answer their prayers. And they were anticipating that God would act just as He said He would. And their unity was bathed in prayer. And their activity is done in prayer. And really the whole passage is bracketed in prayer from verse 14 to 24. It's showing us that they were looking to God in prayer, expecting that He was going to act. How do you pray? 
Do you expect God to act? Do you expect that He will do what He has promised to do? Do you expect that He, when He says, if you ask Him for the Holy Spirit, that He actually will give you the Holy Spirit? Well, those disciples are united. They're waiting prayerfully, living by His promises. We can see in verse 15 to 20 how they're living. The disciples of Jesus, they're living by His promises. This is the third point we're going to look at, and it's really the, the longer point of, of the points we're going to look at. The disciples of Jesus, they live by His promises. And where am I getting that from? Well, you see, in this passage, Peter is actually quoting two different portions of the Psalms, and he is applying them to their situation and, and how they're living those out. And he's living by the promises. He's leading the people to live by the promises. They postured themselves to receive by the Holy Spirit by living by His promises. You may remember at the end of the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 24, 44, just after Jesus had appeared to them in His resurrection, Jesus said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the whole first five books of the Old Testament, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything written about him in the Old Testament must be fulfilled. He says, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them in verse 46, This is written, Thus it is written, The Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead. You are witnesses of these things. You see, the disciples were now given the ability to understand the Scriptures, all the things written about them in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he commissioned them as witnesses of these things. He didn't tell them absolutely everything. That's not what it says. He didn't tell them absolutely everything they needed to know, but He opened their minds up to be able to understand and apply the Scriptures. And Luke is showing us here in Acts that they were living by His promises in the Scriptures. They were taking His Scriptures and they were applying them to their lives. It's a model of how we can position ourselves to receive from Him. They trusted that Jesus had called them to be witnesses of these things. And we see in Acts 1.15, Peter stands up among the brothers and he says, he leads them really living by promises. And it says, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was not all about 120. And what does he do? He stands up and he leads them to understand the scripture and then to live applying those principles. He was leading them to live by God's word, to found their life and their actions on God's word. Listen to what he says in verses 16 to 20. He says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. I don't think we have it up there for you, so you have to listen to this. Verse 16 to 20, or look down in your Bibles. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. What's, what's he starting with? He's starting with believing that the scripture was true. And he says, Concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus... For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field and with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. And he's quoting here from two separate passages in Psalms. He's putting together. And what is he doing? He's living taking God's Word and living by it. We don't see anywhere that Jesus mandated that they replace Judas. 
But the disciples, they trusted and believed what Jesus had told them earlier. They remembered His command in Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, 28, Jesus told them, He said, Truly I say to you that you who have followed Me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In Luke 22, 28, Jesus told them, You were those who stood by Me in My trials and just... As my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Peter believed Jesus. He believed that what Jesus said was true. He didn't have all the details spelled out, but he acted living and trusting God's word. It was clear that Judas would not be one of those twelve. But he believed that when Jesus said, you'll sit on twelve thrones, that it was really true. Judas had betrayed Jesus and he was rewarded for his wickedness. And both from Matthew 27 and here we see that Judas died a miserable death. Because of the wickedness of his heart, it says that his place was not with them any longer. That's in verse 27. It says Judas turned aside to go to his own place. That's really a euphemism, meaning that he would, go, he would not go to the same place as the disciples. But he was going to be going to hell. But they, they're putting it in a way that they, they didn't want to put themselves in a position of God to condemn anyone but it's clear that Jesus would not rule with the other eleven so Peter he was trusting in scripture living what Jesus promised he takes action he makes a decision on a course of action he's guided by the principles of scripture he looked to the Old Testament and Psalms Jesus already applied part of those Psalms to himself directly and Peter saw that these Psalms they were a prophecy of the Messiah as Jesus had said and he applied that prophecy And Peter knew that when Jesus said that there would be 12 tribes, I mean 12 thrones, they would judge the 12 tribes of Israel, he he knew that that was true. And so he applies it and he lives trusting God's word and his promises and he takes action based on that. You see in verse 21 it says, So as one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Peter steps out in faith and he applies scripture. He's living by God's promises. And it tells us in verse 23, the disciples followed Peter in living in accordance to God's word, living by the promises of Jesus. says in verse 23, and they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. They responded. They saw that, yes, we, we need to live. We need to respond to his word. We need to trust in his word. And then we need to respond to that. We don't know who specifically it was who put the two forward those two. It doesn't give us the detail. It listed the 12 disciples. It said there was about 120. It could have been just the 12. could have been the 120. We don't know. That's not the, the intent of the overall passage. We don't know either way. But what's emphasized in this verse is that they relied on the Word of God. And they took action. They trusted in Him. They lived by God's promises. It wasn't a prescriptive detail about how to pick an apostle. Really, it was a one-time deal. Only one apostle was ever chosen outside of the original twelve, and that was Matthias. But they did know that they needed to carry out Jesus' promise to them. You know, after James died, they didn't replace him. Why? Because he would rule on one of the twelve thrones. His death didn't disqualify him. Only Judas was disqualified. And they replaced him in this passage by taking scriptural qualifications... 
And Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. Those of you who have been with me, you shall be my witnesses. And they set two men forward in verse 26. It tells us how they chose between these two men. And it might seem a little strange to you. Look in verse 26. It says, and they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, you may be wondering, what in the world's going on here? Is this a prescription for how do we choose things when we can't decide between two people that we should cast lots for them? No, that's not what the scripture's saying. But in biblical times, there was already a really good precedent for when you had to decide between two things when it wasn't evidently clear that you would trust that God would make his way clear. And at times they would cast lots. And sometimes there used to be little stones that had the right people's names on. And they would, they would cast the lots. And whichever stone turned heads up with the person's name would be the lot that was chosen. You see, these men were probably both well qualified. And they're probably equally confident in both of them. There's probably no major distinctions between them because it doesn't tell us that in Scripture. So it wasn't clear who God intended to be the twelfth disciple. I think one of the other things, one of the other reasons why they cast lots is because who chose the first twelve disciples? Think about it. You can say it. Who chose the first twelve disciples? Jesus. Absolutely. And so the disciples here are casting lots because I think... They're remembering, wait a minute, Jesus is the one who chooses the twelve disciples. He's the one who needs to make this evident and make this clear. We'll put forward men that have the qualifications to be his apostles. But Jesus needs to ultimately make this clear. The lots didn't mean they weren't trusting God. I've heard it said that this is uh, before the Holy Spirit came, and so after the Holy Spirit, um, they... Well, no, this is not meaning that they didn't trust in God. It, actually, the contrary, the Scripture doesn't say anything negative about this here. The evidence is that they're trusting for God in everything, even in the casting of lots. Look at the context in verse 24, if you will, please. It says, And they prayed and said, yeah, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen. To take the place in this ministry and apostleship. From which Judas turned aside to go his own place. What were they doing? They were trusting in the sovereignty of God. They were looking to God. Knowing that God knew these two men's hearts. That he could discern between them. That that his choice would be evident. That they were trusting that Jesus would make known who the twelfth apostle was. And so the last point we're going to look at is that the disciples of Jesus. They were relying on him for everything. And I think that's what we're meant to see is that in every way they were relying on Him. Now we do know that later on we never again see them casting lots to make decisions in the New Testament. That doesn't seem to be a precedent that was set and carried out forever. But what we do see is that every time, every time they make a decision, they are looking to God, praying to God, trusting in God's sovereignty, relying on Him for everything. And Jesus, who called the twelve disciples in the first place, He made it clear. He called the twelfth apostle. This was a unique ministry and apostleship to be one of the twelve. This was, this was not the disciples somehow being worldly by casting lots. It's a unique scenario. They're casting lots because they wanted Jesus to do the final choosing of His apostle. And it wasn't some mistake. Well, we don't hear elsewhere in the New Testament about Matthias. We do know that, that God chose him. And think about that for a minute. Just a little bit of a side is that we don't really hear about any of the other apostles either except for Peter, James, and John. We don't know what the other apostles did except from church history. But in Scripture, we don't hear about 
the other apostles aside from the, the three. And as I was reflecting on that, I was thinking about by way of application to us, it says something to us about, about not serving for notoriety and still being a part of God's huge plan, even, even though no one remembers or knows. I don't know exactly what Matthias did. Church history says that he probably went to the Ethiopians. But in any case, Scripture, scripture shows that what is significant is, is God's choosing. God's plan is carried out. It's not the name of the people who are carried out. And as we're following Jesus, our name is not significant. Whether or not people ever hear of our acts again is not significant. But what is significant is, are we relying on the promises of God? And are we living by the promises of God? Relying on Him for everything. So what's Luke showing us here? What can we learn from this passage today? Luke's showing us that a community of the disciples of Jesus Christ... They're united. They're waiting prayerfully. They're living by His promises. They're relying on Him for everything. So, as we close, what's the application for us today? What kind of attitude, what kind of posture positions us to receive from the Holy Spirit? What are we to do? How do we wait? How do we, how do we live as disciples of Jesus in this time from after He's ascended until He'll return when He's, He's promised us the gift of the Holy Spirit? How do we anticipate the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or should we all go to Jerusalem? Should we find an upper room and wait for Jesus to return? No, that's not the point here. Are we to put forward another apostle? No, that's already been done once for all. That was it. The twelve disciples, they've been selected. They're, they're already the ones who are going to rule with Jesus in judgment. So we're going to make decisions by casting lots. Is that lots? Is that what we're supposed to mean from this passage? No. But we are called to look at the early church in the book of Acts. And we're to live by the same principles that they live by. They were united. They were in one accord. They were waiting prayerfully. They were living by His promises. They were relying on Him for everything. How are, how are you living with other believers? What are, you, are, are you letting other things distract you from living in one accord? Are we seeking to live in one accord and be in one mind? Are, are we seeking to trust in His promises and receive joy by knowing that His promises are true? If not, if we're not living in one accord, we need to repent from those areas where we're not living in one accord and seek to love the Lord and obey Him by living and being united in one mind with the local body of believers He's called us to. What else can we learn here, though? We can live prayerfully. We're to live devoting ourselves to prayer, looking to God, depending upon God. That's the kind of church that we need to be, that we must be, if we will be a church that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're to be a church that's united. We're to be a church that's expecting Him in prayer. Prayerfully expecting God to act, depending upon God, looking to God. Do you want to anticipate? Do you want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit? You are not able to do that on your own. But it's only as we depend upon Him in prayer. We look to God. We expect Him to answer our prayers. We live by His promises. We depend on His Word. And we apply His Word to every area of our lives. And then lastly, like the disciples, we can rely on Him for everything in every situation. No matter what you face, whether it's at home or at school or at work, whatever scenario you find yourself in, we can expect that God will meet us. He'll empower us. 
We can trust in His promises. And then we can live in light of His promises, trusting Him for everything. Let me say one last thing. Do we expect that He'll meet us? Do, do you expect that, that Jesus will do what He said He'll do? Do you live that way? Do you trust that He said He would give you the gift of the Spirit? Do you believe that? Do you trust that He'll return one day? Do you trust and live by His promises? Are you expecting? Are you looking? Are you eager for Him? Are we expecting the empowering of the Holy Spirit? Are are we depending upon Him in prayer and saying, Come, Lord Jesus. Give me that promise of the Holy Spirit. Fill me anew. Empower me afresh. The disciples were joyfully expecting the Holy Spirit to come. The question for us is, do we trust in Jesus, our living King, that He is not dead? That one day He's going to return just as He's departed. In the meanwhile, as disciples, we can pursue living in unity, waiting prayerfully, living by His promises, and relying on Him for everything. And, and we can trust that as we position ourselves this way, that the Holy Spirit, He will fill us with His fullness. And He'll breathe new life and He'll carry us forward on the mission He's called us to. Let's pray. And if I ask the band to come up while we pray.